This is Winning with ADHD, a podcast for parents to empower students. Build up your ADHD teens so that they recognize their own talents, creativity, and uniqueness. Get tips and tricks to help overcome executive functioning challenges. Listen to stories and experiences of what worked and what did not. Together, let's find ways to build your child's self-esteem and start winning with ADHD. And now, here's your host, Heather Walker. Hi guys, I'd like to welcome you to the Winning with ADHD podcast. And today I have Erin Hansen with me, who is an author and consultant to many schools across the country. He works with schools to help improve their processes and leadership and culture and is widely known for his success at the Nevada's at Nevada's White Pine Middle School in transforming their culture back in 2010. So Aaron, I'd love to welcome you to our podcast today. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to have the opportunity to talk to you today and talk about, you know, so many things of, you know, the story of what happened at the middle school that you were at. And you've talked a lot about self-efficacy. Um, we've talked a couple times here over the last several months, and I have found everything that you've said to be so incredibly helpful and inspiring. So I'm grateful for you coming today to help share your story. Um, would you like to start out talking about what happened at this White Pines Middle School and like maybe where it started? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll, tr- I'll try to keep it pretty brief, but it, but it does help sort of, yeah, I guess set up where some of the stuff that I, I continue to talk about where, where it came from. But um, yeah, so I was asked to be the, the principal of that school um, not long after I had actually just been an assistant principal at, this, at a high school in the same uh, little community, at-risk community. And um, the superintendent, when he asked me to do that, he kept me after a long meeting. He said, hey, Aaron, I want you to be the principal of the middle school next year. The school is broken. You need to fix it, is what he said, basically. And um, and. There were a lot of problems for sure. There, by pretty much every metric you can think of, um, our our achievement was really low. We had low attendance rates. We had a lot of incidences of fighting and bullying and and all sorts of other things that and contention that existed among students and students, students and staff, staff and administration. So the short version of that story is that we we went we gathered some like minded people there at the school together. And we went to one of the first uh, PLC conferences or professional learning communities conferences and down in Las Vegas and really over like frozen yogurt drinks and the dinner we could afford. <laughs> we crafted this vision of what we wanted our school to become. And it was a collective vision, which is part of that whole process and that framework and um, and came back and just started having conversations with our staff. And we were able to, you know, in a short amount of time, really make some substantial changes within the school. Um, yeah, so much so we started getting a whole bunch of recognition. Uh, that wasn't our intention, but it just sort of showed up first at a state level and, and then at a national level. So it's pretty, yeah, it was pretty fun, actually. Challenging. So it sounds like it started out maybe feeling a little daunting and overwhelming to, to step into a school that you knew that, like you said, was failing on so many metrics. Um, I think a lot of parents and educators can feel that way as well in in the situations that they're in. Um, So what are some of the steps that you took with this group of like-minded people to um, have an impact on these kids? 
Yeah, so we started with a, a little retreat um, that my my superintendent was gracious enough. He we it's a it's a resource poor district and always probably will be right. It's um, and basically you know he, he was able to spring for a little bit of uh, money for some food and we went up to the local Boy Scout camp which was donated to us the time for that. There was no cell phone service and. Um, you know, no power, but, you know, under the hum of a generator and mosquito spray, we just, uh, we had these, these really structured, but authentic conversations to try to frame what our current reality really was, and what our challenges really were, and to face them, right, and then be willing to start to talk about what it was that we needed to do in order to make those changes. Because, one of the realizations that I'm constantly working with schools around is like we, the adults, we are the school, you know, God forbid a tornado takes out a school, you know, one night, a week later, that school will be in session and they'll be in session in convention centers or in hotels or churches or even outside potentially, but school will continue. And the reason why is because the schools, none of the structures, the, you know, the books, the desks, the computers, it's none of that stuff. It's, it's the adults. Right. And so the result that we're getting as a school is a result of us and our collective capacity and the culture's capacity to allow the collective talents within that building to come out. And so, yeah, there was some, <laughs> some tough, but uh, really good conversations that just started um, you know, around a lot of good food. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think a lot of good conversations start around food. So um, that's a great way. I love how, you, you know, as a school, you guys got together and um, had this time alone to kind of like talk about it and really recognize um, the parts that you needed to work on. And so as I continue to compare this to parents, I think that's super important for parents to be able to do that as well of like, making sure that they take a moment to step back and say, okay, where are we really struggling? Where are our core pieces? But also if you compare this to like a home, it's like the, the family is there, just like you had the analogy of the school maybe being taken out um, from like a tornado. The same thing happens in a home, right? Like the family, the parents um, make up that family and it's going to continue to move forward. And like you said, the, the important pieces is that we as people make up the school or we as people make up the family. And so um, when you got to school and you started, you know, implementing what you had worked on, um, how did the kids respond? Yeah, so mixed. <laughs> there were some <laughs> because some of what we were doing was really instituting some new procedures and routines that they weren't used to. And so we got some pushback in some kind of um, unusual ways at times from kids and even from parents. But at the same time, like our focus and always was from the get-go was relationships first. It was to make sure that we were taking care of our kids, not just academically, but we were making sure that from a social emotional place that, that their well-being was our top priority. And um, our vision that we crafted um, really out of those conversations, a little bit later, but um, out of those conversations in that first retreat where our vision became every student will be known well and will learn at high levels and ordered that way on purpose. 
So meaning we're going to know who they are and what their challenges are, you know, what, what they like, what they don't like, what some of their, you know, their family circumstances may or may not be um, depending. And, and then we would also know what their academic needs were as well. And, and as a result of fulfilling that first portion of the vision, then we felt like the second portion we'd be, we'd have a solid foundation to work on the academic side, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned that the response was mixed, both from both from students and parents. And so how did you handle maybe the, the more negative responses or the ones that weren't quite on board? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Okay. So we, when we first, we wanted to build a super inclusive environment, right? Where kids felt included in, in the culture itself and both from adults, but also from their peers. And so we had a, we had a program that we called, uh, it, it was really, it was like a, a leadership program. We called it the defenders. And I can explain why maybe later, but the, but basically what it was, it was just a, a group of kids who were influential among their peers. So they weren't necessarily, you know, your, all your national honor society type kids, but it was kids that liked to skateboard or liked to play music or, you know, whatever it happened to be. But these were kids who were influential among their peer groups and they came together and it was, it was actually a class, but the whole sole purpose of the class was to improve the culture within the school was to craft the culture that we wanted that was inclusive and was kind and where um, achievement was celebrated and, and growth was something that was celebrated, right? And um, regardless of where you start or even where you finish, but that you're growing. And so anyway, the, the, the res, one of the, the points where we got some resistance around was we said, all right, we're gonna change the procedure for our lunchroom. And the reason why is because the typical kind of middle school situation was taking place or like, you know, the one you, you'd see in like a teen movie or something where, you know, you go to get your tray and you're the new kid and you walk around and you're like, seats taken, seats taken. Yep. They're like, ah, where do I sit? Right. And you feel completely excluded. And, and, and so we said, all right, here's the deal, everybody. However you get in line to grab your tray, that's how you're going to be seated. There's eight people to a table and every seat will be used. So however you line up, that's how you'll be seated. You can line up with your friends if you want, but understand that on either end of your friends, like there's going to be somebody. And so just get used to it. Right. And so we did that. And we, it was interesting to me because I felt like okay, that's a pretty simple thing. We got some resistance from kids, of course, which we sort of expected, but then I got some resistance from some parents and um, it were, I remember specifically, there were three moms that came in to talk to me and, and they said, Mr. Hansen, like this just seems like you're just creating rules for, for the sake of creating rules. And, and they were, they were pretty uh, bristly, I guess, when they came in and I said, <laughs> we sat down and I just had the conversation. I said, you know, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And this is, um, you know, this is, you know, we're trying to create this super inclusive environment where every kid feels welcome and feels accepted. And, and we don't want to have these, these social situations where kids feel excluded. And so that's why we're doing this. And it, it, there was an immediate kind of letdown of, Oh, okay. And interestingly, <laughs> these were fairly influential or at least talkative uh, yeah. moms, right. In the community. And so, um, and a couple of them actually joined our PTA, <laughs> He said, well, come be part of this, like, come help us, you know, right. make changes. 
And some of those types of folks really helped sort of shift that culture for us. But yeah, I, think- um, I like how um, you were focused on the culture, right? And you found a way to kind of like force it to start with, right? But also how when you had some pushback, you explained the reason why. And I think that once you are able to explain the reason why, just like you described, it's like, oh, I understand what you're trying to accomplish here. You're not just trying to put out rules just for rules or set up things just to to set them up that way. I actually um, have something that I can kind of relate to as I've been working with my daughter. Um, We were having so many issues, homework struggles of her being able to be focused and, and to be working. And I finally decided that when you're doing schoolwork, that you're either at the kitchen table or you're at the kitchen island, that you had two choices, that it wasn't going to be laying on the floor and it wasn't going to be sitting on the couch. You definitely weren't going to be downstairs or in your bedroom. Um, I got a ton of pushback to start with, right? It was really hard to like kind of keep pushing that and going forward. Um, But after we did it for a while and she started to see that she was actually more productive at the kitchen table and that she was able to get more free time at the end of it, like the, the, um, her fight against it has stopped. And so, so much so that now we're like a year later and she'll be sitting at the kitchen table and she'll say, Hey mom, can I just read this paragraph laying on the floor in the living room? And she still has her computer facing me so that I can see it. But we've reached a point where we are both on the same page as to what the reason why is and that we're ultimately better off because of that. And I almost consider that almost like our secret sauce of her being successful is this one tiny little shift of this is where you're going to sit and this is the environment we're going to be in in order to accomplish what we're after. And um, I feel like that's kind of similar to what you were doing. It was just one small little change to help impact like this bigger goal. And once you can, as adults, when you're speaking to the parents, like they can understand that reason why. I wonder how long did it take the kids to start to feel the reason why and that it was working and that they maybe were accepting of this change? Yeah, so you're hitting on like a really important principle, I think, and and that's this idea of routines and procedures, right? And there, uh, yeah, there's, we have this tendency to think about like, we don't, we don't want to hamper creativity or we don't want to like create like these uh, conditions that are going to be oppressive in some way. And and we don't obviously, but, but what routines and procedures do is they allow for the environment to be predictable so that I don't have to think and figure out what's going to happen here. But in, but because of all of those parameters and the, the, kind of the narrowed parameters that I'm now existing in and it's so predictable. Now the novelty can be within the task itself, right? Like creativity right. can actually be released within that structure of routines and, and procedures. So it sounds like you guys have kind of, uh, you know, hit that. Yeah. So instead of the kids focusing on the stress and the worry of maybe I'm kind of the outsider or the new student or don't feel like I have a lot of friends. So instead of having the worry of that, now the conversation can just evolve naturally at the table. And like you said, that novelty and that creativity of just becoming friends just happens naturally rather than having to select who you're going to be sitting next to and and create that environment. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we, we did have, it took a while for our kids because it was, you know, that was just one small change. There were tons of changes that we had made and we really made a lot at the very, very beginning. And it was kind of a shock and awe kind of a, an approach. And so, and, and what's interesting is about, about those routines and procedures, all of the, all of the different ones that we put into place, like kids will complain about them. They'll complain about like having that, that discipline or that those, those structures in place but yet you can see on their face that they're happier, right? Like they, right. they, they crave it. They crave that kind of structure, especially kids who are coming from some pretty at-risk environments where other, you know, outside of those, the safety of those structures, there's a lot of chaos that's taking place that they're having to navigate, right? And, and some kids are living really in sort of like perpetual trauma because of all of the, that chaos that's taking place. So, so yeah, predictability, is akin to safety. So that's one of the, yeah, I'm, I'm with no, you. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, some of the things that I talk about all the time are consistent consistency and routine. Um, at home, some of the things that we do that I talk about all the time is that I call it our North Star metric, which is our bedtime routine. And for us, that is something that is incredibly valuable for Emily's success. She does not do well if she stays up late or even if she sleeps in really late. Um, I don't know what it is about her and you know the way that she works, but that is something that if we're consistent with those, um, you know, when she goes to bed and when she gets up, like fairly consistent, right? It's not like on the dot every night, but for the most part, we're at the same time doing the same things every evening and really has helped her be more successful in how she shows up each day. Long time I used to think, I'm going to let her sleep in for a long time. She'll be much happier. And it's actually creates the exact opposite because she does really um, thrive in that structured environment of, I know about what time I'm going to bed. I know about what time I'm getting up and really has a huge impact on her day. So I completely echo what you're saying that processes and consistency helps create a structure that allows them to be comfortable and maybe more confident in, in what's happening throughout their day. And like you said, when they have a lot of other external factors that maybe are, are difficult to overcome, whether that be, you know, their environment of where they live or whether it be, you know, for example, with ADHD and struggling with, you know, learning disabilities and, and that type of setup. Um, one other thing that you said was, is you did a lot of changes but it sounds to me like it was just like one little change at a time. Um, is, is that accurate that you made this change with like the lunch structure and then maybe one other little bitty thing? Is no. that how it kind of worked or did, was it just no. all at once? Yeah. So when, when we came back from that, that summer retreat, we had, we had another, like a task force that had, had really just gone through and to revise a lot and change a lot of those procedures and routines right off the bat as, as we started that next school year. And that was intentional. You know, we thought about um, whether we wanted to take the evolutionary report approach or the revolutionary report. And so we, we said, no, like we want to completely overhaul this thing. Right. And so, so that's what we did. And, um, and, you know, I, and I shared like the, the short version of that story was that we, we started to have a lot of success really pretty quickly and, and we did, but the part of the story that, that really has driving a lot of the conversations I'm like continuing to have and start and having around what I'm writing about now is just that 
even though we made these dramatic, dramatic gains, there were still, we were in both the culture, but also in the academics, we, we felt like at times we were pulling teeth to get kids to learn what we needed them to learn. We felt like we cared more about their learning, way more sometimes about their learning than they did or, or even their parents did. And so even though we were getting all this recognition and we were, we were super excited about everything that was happening, we were, there was a point where we started to plateau, right? And we said, okay, we're not gonna reach our vision if we continue to do what we're doing now. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, so I think that's really leading into kind of some of the things that you talk about a lot now of self-efficacy. So how did you kind of take that plateau moment and then be able to shift to where the students started to care or believed that they could have an impact in, in their education or, or situation life? Yeah. So man, this is interesting because and I've, I've been thinking about where some of this comes from for me personally, because it's really kind of been become like part of my personal purpose or, or mission. Right. And um, it, it really happened through a couple of experiences. What, so we were, we were named um, the middle school of distinction by the international center for leadership and education, which is a prestigious organization. They invited us to this conference that they hold every year. There's 6,000 educators there. They pulled us up on stage and they like told about our school. They told a little bit about our story. They handed us this super cool, like plaque trophy kind of thing. And, and people stood up and gave us a standing ovation. Okay. It was a cool moment. Like it really was was like, wow. And I think every educator should like have a moment like that. Right. It was, it was pretty awesome because we never saw that. We never, that wasn't our intention. It just happened as a result of us doing what we felt like was just the right things to be doing anyway. And for our kids in our community. Right. And, um, but at that same time, what people didn't understand while we were standing up there on that stage is that there was like this massive contention taking place in our school. And it was, and there was so much frustration. And, you know, as people are standing there clapping, I'm sitting there looking at, at our, you know, a large portion of our staff that we, you know, pulled, took over to Florida where they did the thing. And, and, um, and what it really boiled down to where that contention was coming from is again, that we had put all these systems into place to, to intervene for our kids who, who are coming to us significantly behind and struggling, but we felt like with that particular group, okay, those kids who were, who were significantly behind, which was a lot at the time, it was uh, over two thirds of our students were either not proficient in reading math or both, okay? So we had all these systems in place to capture that and try to, to grow them, which we, which we were, but, um, we felt like we were just pulling teeth to get them to learn it. And we felt like, like we were dragging them on along this road of compliance. And right. what we realized in the conversations we were having was this, number one, this, if we continue to do it the way that we're doing it, because we're starting to plateau, we're not going to reach our vision. And number two, we're going to burn out. Like we're not oh, going to be able absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause we were just working like crazy and so, so not very long after this, that next school year had started, I had this young man who ended up in the office. Okay, and um, I don't ever, I, I talk about this young man a lot, but I never use his real name. Um, I call him Cody, okay? And Cody was, and I knew him really well. He came from, uh, 
he he's what I like to call a frequent flyer in the office. <laughs> um, you know, he's got like points and stuff for how often he's been there. <laughs> so, <laughs> but he uh, he was sitting in the assistant principal's office, and I knew him really well. I'd worked really hard to create a relationship with him specifically, and I knew his background. I knew his family. There were a lot of problems. DCFS had been involved, drugs, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. the whole deal, and. And he's sitting there in the office, obviously, because he was in, he was in trouble. Like he'd been kicked out of his class. It was apparent. I pulled him into my office and I had this conversation. I said, "Cody, why are you here, man? Like, what? Why are you here?" And he was in eighth grade, you know, fourteen years old. And and I said, "You know, why why are you here? What do you what do you how how come you got kicked out of class?" And he sat back in his chair, folded his arms, and he said, "I don't know. Teacher doesn't like me." And I was like, "Okay." I said, "But." Cody, did you do anything? He's like, I don't know. Teacher just doesn't. I said, okay. So I walked down the hall, just a couple of doors down to his math intervention class, right? It was an additional class, an additional math class in addition to his regular math class. I went into the, this teacher's classroom and I said, and the moment I walked in, I could feel the tension, right? right. I could just feel it. And I, I walked up to her and I said, hey, Cody's in the office. There's no paperwork. Like, how come he's there? What, what's going on? And she looked at me, she put her hands on her hips and she pointed at me. <laughs> and there's like, man, I'm, a, I'm really patient for the most part, but there's one thing I just don't like in this world. <laughs> and that's like when it's when I get pointed at. So she pointed at me, got my attention. Real <laughs> quick, okay? Just my one thing. I don't know why. But so she pointed at me and she said, she said, Aaron, do you see all these boys here? And I looked and sure enough, there's what most people would consider to be at risk boys right sitting there she said cody's currency is all about making them laugh and i'm trying my darndest to get these kids to learn what they need to learn but i care way more about their learning than they do and i feel like i'm pulling teeth she said i just needed a break wow and, and i said okay okay right i put my hands up and surrender and i walked back by this time i'm a little bit irritated because i knew cody and i knew what his potential was See, because Cody's smart. He really is. Um, he's got so much potential. But how many times have I had this conversation with him, right? Over the years, he's been in our school for over two years. So I walk in and I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit irritated at that point. And I sit down, you know, and he, he's not even nervous about being in the principal's. He's like, can I have a piece of your candy? I'm like, no, you can't have my Right, candy. right. You're in trouble. Like, be, be nervous, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so he's sitting there and um, I'm like, Cody, why are you here? Why are you here? And so I started to kind of fuss at him a little bit. And finally, he kind of sat up in his chair. And I, and I thought to myself in that moment, I thought, well, good, at least I'm going to get some reaction out of you. Right? Right. I'll never forget this moment. Heather, this is like, this moment transformed my life. Seriously. He looked at me and he pointed at me. And, and he said, he said, Mr. Hansen, what does it matter? And I said, what do you mean, Cody? What do you mean? Right? And he said, because I'm never getting out of here. Wow. And it, yeah, it was, it was a moment. And I sat there with it for just a moment. And, I, and I, I was speechless. I really was. Because I knew what he meant. See, the moment, like the moment wasn't lost on me. I knew what he actually meant. It wasn't, I'm never getting out of math intervention. What he really meant was, 
I'm never getting out of my crappy life. Right. Right. Um, so I'm going to, that's a very touching story. Um, it makes me a little bit emotional. And while um, my personal experience with my daughter isn't exactly like that, um, I can completely relate to the comments of, there's nothing that I can do to make a change. Um, Emily's 10th grade year was last year. And um, she's probably had three years in her education to this point that have been just really, really, really hard years. And her 10th grade year is, is one of those. And um, I had picked her up from school. We were on our way home and it was just another day of emails from teachers of, you know, she said she turned this in. It's not here. You know, she said she did this. It's not there. You know, I get in the car and I'm like, Emily, you, you, you told me that you turned this in, but the teacher's saying you don't have it and it's not even done. Like, what can you, like, what can we change? How can we help you so that this is in a better place? And she sat there and she didn't say anything. And your, your comment of being pointed at makes you mad. Um, for me, when she sits there and shrugs her shoulders, just sends me through the roof. I'm like, what do you mean you have nothing to say? You have nothing to offer in regards to how to make your situation better. And I got really mad in the car that day. And I was like, please just tell me one idea. Just give me an idea of what we could do to help you because you're the one that lives this every day and everything that I have tried to implement and do for you hasn't worked. And she sat there and she was quiet and didn't say anything. And finally she just yelled out the word binder. And I was like, what is that going to do? I'm like, you've had 20 different binders. What is a binder gonna do? And at the moment I was really upset, but really what the answer was is she had no idea. She actually had no idea how to change her situation or to make it any better. And she knew that I was out of ideas at that point in time of, hey, I've been forcing this on you. And I was asking her, maybe if you come up with the idea, maybe this will be successful because you've had some input in it rather than me just dictating, hey, let's try this. And so your story like I can really resonate with the feelings that are there of feeling completely hopeless. And like, as you know, Emily, as a student feeling like she can't do anything, just like your student Cody feeling like there's nothing that I can do to get out of this. But then also as a parent of, I don't know what else to do. I feel hopeless as to how we can change our current situation. And there was a lot of contention in that car as well. So I can imagine what that felt, you know, in your office or in the classroom. Yeah, it's, it, it was, it was a, yeah, I, I can appreciate what you're saying because, um, as, and, you know, educator or parent coach either, I mean, it doesn't matter what our roles have been as we're trying to help kids that and, and, and man, see, the thing of it is, is like, we can see the potential in them. Oh, but they, absolutely. Can't, they can't see in themselves. Right. And that's the part that's super frustrating. Cause you're like, no, man, look, if you would just listen to me, if you would just trust me. Right. But if the problem is that's taking place in that moment for Cody and a lot of our kids is they're telling themselves a story. Right. And, so, and by the way, sometimes the system itself is the one that has, is really the largest contributor to that story. And I can explain exactly why. 
as early as first grade, sometimes even earlier, okay? Kids, teachers will pull small groups of kids back to the back of the room to try to help them based on what their deficits are. And that's a good practice. That's an educationally sound practice based in research, okay? If it's done well, if it's done poorly, not only is it not effective, I would argue that it does damage. And here's why, is because if I'm the kid who continues to get pulled over and over and over again, then what I'm gonna to start to say to myself in my mind, right? Even if it's not conscious, it's subconscious. I'm gonna to start to say, well, there are those over there who are learners. And then there's me. Right. Because I'm pulled every single time, right? So if, if teachers are polling kids, they have to make sure that the intervention is, is specifically targeted to exactly what the deficit is so that it actually helps, right? And that's one of the, that's one of the parts of the system that I'm, I'm constantly teaching to, to educators or to schools, but um, yeah. But in that moment with Cody, right? Like that's what was happening in his mind is he, and he, up to this point, he's in eighth grade. He's been telling himself this story for, for probably more than half his life, right? And so, you know, why would he try? Why would he put effort out? And there's, there's a serious fear there, okay? That's akin to like, um, yeah, I don't know, see if I can explain this. Like, well, and I guess maybe to sort of finish the story, like that sort of, that moment right there where he, he said that to me, like I, I honestly was speechless. I didn't know what to say. And because I, you know, I'd given him my best pep talk before and he'd heard that same pep talk a million times from, you know, people who dress like me, right? People who wear a tie to work. Who, how could I possibly understand where he comes from and what his situation is when I'm wearing a tie to work, right? And so anyway, in that moment, like I said, there, there's a story that's being told and what, what that moment did for me and then the larger context of our school being in this place of contention where we felt like we were pulling teeth, it really sent us as a school down this rabbit hole of trying to understand how we were going to help kids start to co-own their learning with us instead of us dragging them along this road of compliance. And we ended up changing a lot of our practices and just experimenting and trying different things that some worked and some, some of them didn't. And then I started giving some presentations at that point that I was getting invited to different conferences to come and share our story and how we did a lot of things that we were doing. And so I started to share some of these concepts, but the problem was, and I would tell stories, like I would tell these, like, I mean, just amazing stories about kids turning their lives around and, and changing the trajectory literally of their lives and their, you know, future generations to come and, and climbing out of generational poverty or, or, or just developing a sense of self-confidence and self-efficacy that, that didn't exist before. And um, I would tell these stories and people would be moved. I would have educators that would come up to me and they'd say, oh, I loved your story. And let me tell you mine about my son or about a kid that I had in my class or whatever. But the problem was at that point that even though I was sharing those things and those concepts with people, like it was still, I was still talking in these big, broad terms and and it just wasn't, people weren't able to take all those concepts and then just start to replicate them, right? Right. So that sent me sort of like on this deep dive and I went back um, and this, I'm this is over years, okay? This is over a number of years that this is happening, but 
I went back and started to read some of not just the contemporary literature about self-efficacy, which probably should define, I guess, what that is. Maybe, yeah. What do you think? That would be great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I say the word, I define it afterwards. So yes, I'd love to hear you do that as well. Yeah. So the way I would define what self-efficacy is, is really my belief in my, uh, that my current inputs are going to impact my future. Okay. If, if you wanted to take a really broad view of it, you could say what self-efficacy is my belief in, in my ability to, to impact my destiny. Right. right. And it, it's the, it's really at the core of volition, motivation, um, you know, courage, like it, it's, it's a, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a skill. I would call it a disposition and, it, and it can be learned. Okay. Um, but anyway, so I read all the contemporary literature from about, you know, an education around mindsets from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, all those kinds of things, but still felt like it was lacking based on some of the concepts that we had discovered that worked. And so I did a deeper dive and I started reading some of the psychologists like Carl Jung, uh, Carl Rogers, Albert Bandura, um, and a whole bunch of others. And really, and, and then just sort of fortuitously, I bumped into Joseph Campbell and all of his work um, about the hero's journey. And that really led me to a place where I could create this framework that educators could follow to help kids who were in that fixed mindset who, were, who had been telling themselves a story that they weren't capable, that they weren't a learner, you know, that they, that they were, you know, really kind of a victim in a lot of ways, right? Um, and, and be able to take that, that story and start to recreate experiences that would allow kids to reframe that story and tell a new story about themselves. And, you know, Byron Katie explains this really clearly, um, I think beautifully, actually, she, she explains essentially that, um, you know, if you tell yourself a story long enough, you'll believe it. And once Absolutely. you believe it, yeah, you'll act it out. And if you act it out, you'll become it, right? Yeah, so I say this quite a bit in, you know, where I'm putting out information to parents of those with ADHD is, I call it stacking wins. What I learned with Emily is that we made a ton of changes, kind of like what you did, kind of more of that revolutionary type of like, here's the line in the sand. These things don't happen anymore. These things are how we're going to do this. Um, and, you know, I, I, to start with, she went along with it is what, how I would describe it. And after, you know, probably six weeks, I think she started to recognize how it was these changes that we had made were making it to where her situation in regards to school was so much better. She actually didn't start to um, like verbally acknowledge it until we were 10 weeks in. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that she had done that. I had actually talked to you at this point in time because we had just finished her first term of school for this year. And I was so proud of her. And I told her, you did a great job. And, um, she was actually setting goals for herself. I have never, ever in the time of parenting, Emily, seen her set goals for herself in regards to education up until that point. And it was one of those moments where I was like, you actually see 
that there is something positive in your future for doing this and that you, it's not torture to you anymore. She still doesn't like school. Don't get me wrong. It's not like her favorite thing to do. Um, but knowing that she could actually have a better situation from what we were doing. And I believe you've had those types of experiences with the students at your schools. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, uh, that's the whole idea, right? And the, and the idea of really trying to write the book that I'm writing right now is to give, um, you know, educators and potentially parents, I think um, savvy parents would be able to pick this book up, even though it is an educator book, would be able to pick it up and apply the concepts to their parenting um, and, um, or coaches for sure. Um, but, but yeah, and, and that, what, what our framework really is and what what we're trying to help people understand is number one is that where these often kids who have struggled for whatever reasons right they have developed this like i said this fixed mindset where they're believing this story that that they're subconsciously telling themselves about themselves and so as that takes place um it's it's just um what what we're trying to do is move that change that story a little bit, but, um, or not, not a little bit, a lot, right? Um, <laughs> yes, a lot. <laughs> but, sorry, I got distracted for a second. But, um, but really the way that we're going to start doing that is by, is by crafting these experiences, okay, where, um, where kids are going to have some success, right? Like you said, stacking wins. I love that term. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but then not only have the wins, but then start to engage kids in what we call a metacognitive conversation. And that all that is is a fancy term for a reflective conversation, right? And so, you know, and this, the conversation would go something like this, you know, hey, you started here, right? You started in this place of not knowing how to do this thing that's hard. Was this hard when you started? Yeah, it was hard, okay? But now, you know how to do this thing, or you've made progress towards knowing how to do this thing, right? Yeah. Okay. You're, it's like being on a, on a path on a hike or something and you're, you're hiking up and it's like, man, this is hard. Like you're going up and it's hot and sweaty and you're tired and you need a snack and all that stuff. Right. But then you get either all the way to the top or maybe even just a portion of the way to the top and you turn around and you look, you just take a look. Right. And so that's what we're doing when we get to that spot and we say, and the conversation will go something like, Okay, so you started here, you ended here. How did you do it? How did you do it? And what you're, what you're doing is you're putting them in a position to tell a new story about themselves. Okay? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Keep going. Keep okay. going. <laughs> and so what a kid's, you know, what a kid's going to say more than likely is they're going to say, because kids are kids, right? They're going to say something like, well, you were there, you already know what I did, you know, <laughs> or something along those lines. And so you, but if we kind of keep coaching through that, that conversation say, no, but you tell me, you tell me what happened. You know, how did you feel when you first started? Was this frustrating? Was it hard? Did you think you could do it? Right. Like all those kinds of conversations and then to be able to ask, okay. Um, and then what happened? Like, what did you, what did you actually do? And what we're really trying to coach out in that process is three things. Okay. Three things. The first is, that, well, I, I used good strategies, right? I used some strategies to, to get where I am now, okay? Number two, I gave it sufficient amount of time. So I gave these strategies enough time to actually start to gain some traction and work. And then three, and this is the most important by far, 
okay, is to get them to be able to say something along the lines of, well, I, I tried really hard. I tried yeah. really hard, right? And what you're, what, and then at that point, you're going to help them make that connection. You're going to say, all right, so wait, you mean to tell me that your effort had something to do with your success? Well, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And do you think that applies to any other areas of your life? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. 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 <laughs> yeah, and so experience after experience, we start to shift this story where we're making them the expert. We're making them really the hero in their own story. And, and you know, what is a hero? Well, a hero is somebody who gets knocked in the dirt and then gets back up. That's what a hero oh, is. Absolutely. And because kids said, I mean, kids tend to think, well, to be smart, to be smart means that I show up knowing how to do a thing. Like it's easy. It's like, no, 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 that's not smart. I tell my own kids this all the time. I say, what smart really is, is not knowing how to do a thing and being able to persevere through the struggle of learning how to do that thing and then being able to do that thing. That's what smart is, right? I, yes, I completely agree. My dad taught that to me when I was younger and it was, it's probably one of those moments that I remember really uh, so often throughout being an adult when I encounter something that's new and hard, right? Um, so being able to see that and recognize that at a younger age is so valuable because um, when you're in school, there's quote unquote, a right answer. When you think about like a math problem, but when you move on to life situations, there isn't always just one right answer. Right. And there isn't always, um, a plan to how to exactly get out of a situation as, you know, as you, um, become a parent in particular. Right. Um, I wanted to go back though. You, you guided me with those steps when I told you about Emily, setting those goals for herself. And I, I specifically said today that I said, good job. And I think this is important to note because I think as a parent, when we say good job, we are recognizing the efforts and we're trying to um, encourage them to keep doing those things. And as a parent, you recognize those steps that they take but I don't think that they always recognize the steps that they took to get there. And I, I took what you suggested and asking those questions and having that reflective period and ask, you know, you know, what did you do, Emily? You know, because at the end of that term, she had all A's and B's except for one C and it was in math and math is a struggle for Emily. Um, and what I thought was interesting was, is that she was the most excited about the C in math out of all of her grades. And so I said, why are you so excited about the C in math? And she says, because I worked really hard for that. And I asked her and I said, well, what did you do differently that you're so excited about this grade in math that you've earned? Um, you know, what helped you get there? And she said, I actually took notes. I was like, oh, okay. What else did you do? She says, well, I worked all of the problems that the teacher went over and I made sure that I got them right before I started the homework assignment. It's like, oh, okay, cool. And I, um, so I asked her, 
well, what are you going to do this next term then? Are you going to do anything differently? And she's like, no, I'm going to keep doing these things. They're working. And so her verbalizing that back to me, I think is super valuable for these kids to recognize one, to know what the steps and strategies are that they use to get there. Um, but I think there's something about them verbalizing it as well. Like you said, it establishes that new story. I did something hard. Here's what I did. Here's why it impacted my situation. Also, for those with ADHD, they live so in the moment that it's actually really hard for Emily to be able to look too far in the future or too far back. Mm -hmm. So by recognizing it as early as possible, I've learned that it helps establish that she's winning, that I have to do it more frequently because she's so in the present moment. That's just a common trait of ADHD that I need to reiterate it more often. Yeah. Anyway, it was such a cool experience. Um, and I found it super valuable and great advice. Yeah. I'm glad I remember that conversation. I remember the follow-up too. And, uh, yeah, it makes, it makes my heart happy to hear that. Um, it works, it really works. And, um, and you're right. I think if, uh, like that's a good observation probably for your listeners to, to know is, you know, thinking about that analogy of hiking that mountain or that hill again is to make some, to have those, those reflective conversations multiple times up the path, right? Not waiting until the very end to have that conversation necessarily. And I think you, you hit on this a little bit too, like is I think, and this might be contrary to what uh, some parents might think or feel, right? Like this one might be one where they might push back on me and, and that would be okay if they wanted to. But, um, but we wanna be a little reserved in our praise of kids, right? And you, I think you kind of alluded to this is like, when we, when we get super excited about their achievement, right? And what, what, they, what they did and, and the, the popular literature about growth mindset really like the one takeaway people got out of that, which is in my mind, really an over, an oversimplification was to praise effort. Right. And what I would say instead of really praise, I mean, praise is always nice to have, um, to get, but we're, our purpose is more valuable than that is to then to just give praise. What our purpose is, is to develop that disposition of self-efficacy and, and, um, and the way to do that, I, I have found and um, is really to be able to just notice, just notice, right? It's like, oh, so you mean you did this? Yeah, I did this step, right? I took, I took notes, I worked the problems. Mm, that's interesting. And mm-hmm. that worked for you? Mm-hmm. See, you really, you really want to put them in the position of being the expert. Right. Like, like you're interested, you're genuinely interested. Like, tell me, what did you do? How did you, how were you successful? Like, oh, that's interesting. Right. It's like, so my daughter, one of my daughters, um, 16, she's really talented in, in some things and athletics is one of them. And, um, you know, she, she's pretty used to being successful, but, um, and, you know, one day when she, she really, she, had a match and she lost and she was super upset and she was really frustrated. It was really important to her. And she, she ended up losing and And she came home that night and we, I gave her a big hug cause she was, she was emotional and, and like I said, sad. And, um, and I said, sweetie, you need to understand though. Like she, 
She said, I just feel like I let my team down. I feel like this and that. And I said, yeah, but did you try your best? And she said, yeah, I really did. And I said, I, I know, and I'm proud of you. Okay. But I want you to understand something. I'm proud of you. And I love you because of who you are in general, right? Like your worth is inherent to who you are. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with that. Right. So so when we, when we express that love and that praise and like all the feel good stuff, like it needs to be centered on, on them as a, as a person. Right. And then, but if we're just, and then we're just noticing when they're putting good strategies, when they're putting good effort in and um, helping them make the connection that, oh yeah, it is through my own efforts and my own volition that I showed up in this place of of skill, right? I can do this thing now that I couldn't do before. And it was hard to actually learn that. It's not hard anymore because now I know how, but before it was hard. And I didn't show up here in this place of knowing this thing because of God-given talent. And I didn't show up here on accident. And I didn't show up here because of my teacher's effort. I showed up here because I used good strategies. I used them for a period of time and I worked hard. Right. Right. And when kids start to understand that about themselves, that truly they are capable, they're, they are in that position of being able to say about themselves, look, I, I know I can do hard things. And the reason I know that is because I've done them before. I have evidence. It's not, it's not mom or dad who tells me I'm great, right? Because that, that's not completely honest. That, I can't completely trust that because if they tell me I'm the best and I'm awesome, I might end up getting in a position where I struggle at some point. And sure enough, I'm not awesome anymore. And so my whole ego is yeah. crushed, right? My whole identity. No. Crushed. Yeah, that is a perfect way of stating it. Um, Emily has told me in the past before that she struggles with a lot of praise um, because she's almost waiting for the other shoe to drop of when she's no longer meeting my expectations to earn that praise anymore. And um, that's something that she has told to us for a long time before the last couple of years, even, and, and meeting you and learning, you know, some of the strategies that you've mentioned. And so I've always had to kind of pull back and reserve it, but it wasn't until the last couple of years that I started to understand why. And it was because she didn't have that own belief in herself that she could continue to meet that expectation or earn that praise or that it would be consistent, but rather that the next day she would fall off and then, you know, she wouldn't be good enough again. And so I, I see that in my own daughter and the, the situations that we've been in and learned from. So as a parent, then we've talked about several different things here. Um, as a parent, what are your, I don't know, maybe your tips or advice of implementing, implementing this at home to help increase their self-efficacy? Do you have a story to share or something along those lines? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's great. I do have, I do have a, a little story that might illustrate some of this. Um, why I was asked to go give a, a, a talk actually in a school, um, actually to students this time, which I don't normally do, but um, one of the educators there just knew of my work. And she said, Hey, do you ever talk to kids? Would you come and, and talk? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll come and give it a shot. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how that, how well that completely went, but I gave it, I gave it my best. But in the meantime, 
I brought my my three youngest kids with me because I thought, you know what, you guys don't ever hear me talk really, so this might be worth like listening to, which was interesting because my daughter, my uh, my youngest daughter, she's uh, she was nine at the time. Her her whole feedback was, "Well, Dad, you can talk a long time." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, "Thanks." She was thoroughly impressed with how long I could speak, but anyway. Um, I was like, well, that's what you got out of that. Huh? All right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, don't be disappointed, parents, if you don't. Feel like <laughs> um, so, but we found this park actually on and on the way in this little community, and it was about an hour, hour and a half drive from where we live. We we stopped at this park and we found this old slide, this giant old slide, and it was it like goes down in sections. Okay, and so, but it's really tall and it's pretty steep. I, the thing had to have been built long before anybody ever thought about liability. Right? <laughs> Not sure it was entirely safe, but anyway. Um, so my my son, who was ten, jumped right to the top as soon as we found it and went straight down. Didn't hesitate. Right. My youngest son, whose name is Eddie, um, he was five at the time, and. I asked Eddie, I said, Eddie, do you want to go down the slide, right? Because that's part of a, a father's role in particular, okay, is to encourage your kids to take risks, right? And manageable risks, safe, within some kind of safe parameters. I knew it was safe because his brother didn't die when he went down. But anyway, <laughs> so like, that was a but um, I said, Eddie, do you want to try it? And he looked at me and he said, no, nope. And I said, it's going to be fun, Eddie. You're going to really, really like it. And he's like, nope. And I said, why? He said, too scary. No way. Right. And that's how kids feel when they're being asked to try to do something new oftentimes. And also when they're being asked to try to do something that they've had experience not having success with before. It's, it's just as visceral of a fear as that fear for safety, right? When you're put in that position of being asked to really, really try on something, when you feel like you have history or you're telling the story about yourself that you're no good at this, right? And so that's one of the challenges that we're, we're always facing. And that's why as, a, as educators, we felt like we were pulling teeth, right? Is because kids were resistant to even trying. We're, and we would sit and say to them, look, we can see your potential. We know you can do this. You just got to try. You just got to trust us, right? But they've had experiences where they've been burned in the past, so they don't trust you inherently, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, or at least they feel like that. That's the story they've been telling themselves. So I talked to Eddie, and, and by the way, I might have made this mistake when I was a younger parent. Um, I might have grabbed him and brought him to the top of the slide and sent him on his way, right? But what would that have done to the relationship? Right. right. It would have eroded the trust and, or, and, you know, potentially even just terrorized him and knowing Eddie, cause he's a pretty strong willed kid. He probably would have got down to the bottom of it. And I would say, was it fun? And he would have said emphatically, nope. And it never will be right. So, okay. So being a little bit older and, and having read way too much psychology over the last <laughs> 15 years. Okay. Um, I said to him, I said, all right, Eddie, 
I said, do you want to try just going down the first little, could you climb on the, on to the slide on that first section and go down just that little first section? That's no taller than the slide we have at home at our park that's close by. And he's like, yeah, I could do that. So I helped him get on there and I held him. I held his little legs, right? And I said, you tell me when you're ready and then I'll let go. And so he said when he was ready and he let go. Sure enough, I was like, how was that? He was like, it's fine. And so he came back and he tried again, right? And did it again, did it a couple more times. And I said, Eddie, what's next? What's next? Right. And that's a key as well. Once they've had that success and we've engaged in a little bit of that reflection, the, the next question is, well, what's next? What's next? Right. Because we don't get, we never get to sit. We never get to be, we never get to rest. There's always a new goal that needs to be set. Right. Yeah. And I mean, with, within reason, I guess. Right. I you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, so I turned to him and I said, oh, I said, okay, well, why don't you climb to that next? And he's so sure enough, he climbs up to that next session. This time he didn't even need help. He climbs on there. He lets himself go and he goes down. He does that one more time. And I said, you could, could you go up to the next section? Sure enough, he tries it. Finally, at the end, he climbed all the way to the top and on his own, went all the way down this slide. And I still remember like, you know, I'm sitting there with my phone, taking video of him, just having family moment, but not realizing I was probably capturing, you know, material. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he gets down to the very bottom of the slide and he just puts his hands up in triumph, right? He's just so excited that I he went down. It. Yep. Yep. And so again, because it's not just about the accomplishment, it's about the reflection about the accomplishment, right? That's the key. And so I engaged him in that metacognitive conversation um, over ice cream after I pried him away from the slide, right? <laughs> His brother who went right to the top from the get-go, like the novelty of that slide wore off real quick, yeah. right? But because it was a challenge for Eddie, like he was glued to that thing. Like he wanted to do it a million times. And that's why, by the way, that's the same reason why video games are so addictive for kids is because you're taking your current level of skills and then you're being challenged. You have to beat the boss. But then as soon as you beat them, what do you get? more of this but harder right and there's the brain craves that then there's a dopamine dump that takes place when we're successful like it's it feels really really good and we're hardwired to feel that success every kid okay so once once he um you know once he had done that and pried him away when we went and had some ice cream i sat down with him and i just said eddie tell me about that experience what do you mean i said well when, you know, when you looked at that slide from the first, like, what was your thought? What was your reaction? He was like, I thought that was so scary. It was way too big. I was never going to go down that. I said, then what happened? What happened? Tell me about it. Right. Making him the expert. I said, what did you do? And he's only five, but he's still kind of, <laughs> he's pretty sharp. He's like, he's like, you were there, dad. <laughs> like you saw what happened. I was like, I know, but I want you to say it. Like, ah, right. Right. <laughs> like, right. He's already rolling his eyes at me. So then he's like, he says, well, you know, I went up to that first section and you held me. And then I said, go and you let go. And I went down and then I climbed to the next section and he described the process. Right. And I said, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I said, so that was a pretty scary thing to start with. Right. He's like, yeah. I said, but you did it. He's like, yeah, I did. I said, how's that feel? He says, good. Good. Takes, yeah. he's not right he's not overthinking this but when I said to him I, and I mean even at five years old I said to him I said well what 
what, how does this apply to your life, Eddie? And he says, sometimes hard things are going to come up, right? Or something along those lines. And he says, but I can do it, right? That's awesome. That's, yeah. I love that story. It's, um, it's exactly what we want of our kids, right? We want them to, um, I think I, I heard several things from the story. One is that he was willing to try the smaller slide with help. And I think a lot of times as our kids, especially as they get older, feel like asking for help means that they're lesser than. At least that's the experience that I've learned in talking to several kids around the middle school or even um, upper elementary school of, if I have to ask for help, then that means that I'm not smart maybe, right? For example but that he was, he was willing to accept your help. And then he was willing to try the next harder thing. Right. Um, I think a lot of times our kids, um, get stuck because it looks like that really big slide and we just need to help break it down for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think all kids feel that right. Um, but in regards to an audience of ADHD, that is actually a very, very common trait, um, or characteristic is getting so overwhelmed by, how big this activity is, this project, this problem, this slide, that they're unable to move or take action. And by saying, okay, cool, let's look at this. Here's a small slide. Let's try that one. Okay, cool. You did that one. You need a little help, but, and then he moved on to the next one. So I can see so many different ways to be able to apply this story about going down a big slide to so many different situations with our kids and helping them to recognize how to um, get started, how to ask for help, how to accept the help, how to then, you know, say, okay, cool, I'll do the next one by myself. And then be able to step back and look at all of the steps that they took and what they ended up accomplishing at the end. And so that is, that is a great story. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask you one more question that, um, and then we'll wrap up. How can parents work with their teachers and schools to help make their student the hero in their journey? Yeah. So when the book comes out, right. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're a little bit early here, but yeah. you know, I think, um, there's so many good things here. Um, I would there, love to yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think part of it is just getting involved, right? And I think part of it is also voicing to our educators in our communities what we actually value and what we care about as consumers of public education, right? To be able to say, listen, like whether my kid passes that state proficiency exam, I mean, yes, that's, that's important, but not nearly as powerful as, as developing something like self-efficacy, right? Because yeah, it, it doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't matter where your current levels of learning are, but if you have the disposition of self-efficacy, like you will be a powerful individual. You will be able to contend in the world. You will be able to make a living and then some, you will have impact. Okay. But, but I think what happens to our educators and it's, not necessarily a fault of, of theirs, but really sort of a broader system is that they feel so much pressure to get kids to pass you know, these tests or the state tests or, um, and I think uh, 
I think there has to be a balance, you know, there has to be a balance. And I think, uh, you know, just encouraging that communication and say, th these are the things that, that I really care about, you know, is being, and also asking teachers specifically, like during teacher conferences, you know, um, how are, how, what's your plan for, for helping my student grow, right? Like not being hung up on, is it A or B or C or D or whatever, but what is your plan for helping my student grow? Because that's what we value. That's what we care about, right? And um, I, th I think as educators, see this as a school for us, it never was about like any tests ever, right? We looked at them, we paid attention for sure. And we made sure our kids were prepared, but it wasn't ever about that. It was always about just really trying to develop um, them as individuals so that they could, you know, pull up their bootstraps, mm -hmm. go out into the world and, and achieve the American dream and, um, and be equipped with what they needed to do that. And so I think um, as educators are given permission in part by the people that they're serving to really do that, I think that's powerful. Um, anyway. Yeah, um, that speaks to me. Um, my daughter is um, really good at, um, what's the word? Like deciphering how people feel about her or at least her perceived um, view of how they feel about her. And specifically when it comes to her teachers, um, like when she started middle school, she went to one school for just a couple of weeks and then she ended up switching for a number of different reasons. But in those first two weeks, um, she instantly knew which teachers in her mind cared about her and which ones didn't in her mind care about her. And, and I say in her mind, because I do believe that all teachers care about their students and the way that they go about it is probably different. Um, for her though, the teachers that didn't care about her were the ones that nitpicked that her leg, that her foot was up in her chair rather than both feet on the floor, for example. Um, that meant to her that they didn't care about her and that they were so focused on her fitting in this box of this student in a seat, listening, not talking, raising her hand, which are all things that she's not right. super great at, right? And then the teachers that really care about her or in her mind care about her or, or show up in her life in a different way has always resulted in completely different um, responses from Emily. Yeah. So the ones that she cares about, and there's one in particular that I, oh, she has several, but one in particular that I'm thinking about right now, she still talks about her fondly about how she impacted her and how she made her experience in the classroom enjoyable. And she felt good about that experience. And I think that that's really what's important is that we have an environment where they feel that they are winning, that they are cared about, that they are um, maybe not judged for how they show up in whatever way. And um, ultimately for Emily, I think that really is what resonates the most with her and in her experience. And then ultimately how she chooses to show up because when she has somebody that she's working with that cares about her, she naturally works harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, cool, Aaron. Um, it was so great talking with you. I honestly could probably talk to you for like several more hours um, about all of this. I find 
your knowledge and expertise um, just inspiring um, the, the situations that you've been in. Um, I think it offers hope when a lot of times, um, you know, maybe some other educators or parents or even students are, are, don't feel that, that there are ways that we can um, establish this self-efficacy. We can help our students to um, stack wins, as I say. Um, and, you know, just like you said, if you show up and you work hard and you recognize where you are putting in inputs, it will directly, you know, impact the results that you get. And so thank you so much. Um, I'm going to include um, some different resources down in like the notes of the podcast so that others can find you. And when your book comes out about, you know, having the student be the hero you know, you will need to let me know because I want to be one of the first people to buy it, but I also want to share it with everybody so that they can check it out as well, because I just know it has gold in it. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Heather. Appreciate it. And appreciate all the good work you're doing too. So thank you. (laughs) Winning with ADHD is brought to you by Disrupt ADHD. Head on to disruptadhd.com slash learn more.